Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what it is, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that through your word and through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would be fanning in us affections, not only for you, but for your holy bride, the church, that you'd stir in us an appreciation, that you'd give us your heart for your church, that you'd help us to understand a little bit more of its purpose and design. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, So last Sunday, I was in the second service, standing next to Bob, and uh, in the middle of a song, he leans over and he says, so Dan, you want to preach next week? And I thought to myself, I think I actually said it to Bob, man, how bad was the first service? Because we've all been there. And you preach twice, and the first service goes awful, and you're like, oh, i got to get up and do this again. I'm done. I don't want to do it. But he said, no, 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 it was fine. He was actually thinking of me. He knows that I love to talk about the church, and I wasn't on the schedule to be in this series on images of the church. So he said he, you know, he just wanted to give me the, the chance to talk about the church. I'm a little suspect. I think maybe there was a late-night Cubs game last night or something, but I'll take Bob at his word. And he's right. Uh, I do love to talk about the church because I absolutely love the church. I consider that, well, a small miracle. Because I grew up in the church, in the pastor's home. I was a PK. 
the first church I remember was our church in Florida, and that church had the, the philosophy. They, they thought it was their responsibility to keep the pastor humble and poor. I, I don't know that they kept him humble, but I do know that they kept him poor. Um, I learned years later that my grandma and grandpa would come down to visit once a year, and they would leave often in tears at the kind of conditions we lived in as, as a family. Uh, the second church I remember was a church in New York, and they took much better care of us financially. Um, but about halfway through my dad's term there, uh, he came under and my family came under really intense scrutiny and I would say even kind of personal attack. So after that, when I went off to college, I kind of thought to myself, I don't want anything to do with this thing called the church. I did not, at that point, love the church. But God wore me down and began to fan these embers of, of love for his bride, the church. The church, with all of its flaws, with all of its weaknesses, with all of its, frankly, failings, is still a beautiful, powerful, epoch-defining institution, and I love it. It's so important, so beautiful, that God doesn't rely on just one image to convey the beauty and the importance of the church. He gives us this, this plethora of images in Scripture. Last week, Bob talked about a very familiar and incredibly important image, the church as the body of Christ. This week, I turn to a, maybe a little bit more obscure image, the church as a lampstand. John, as he's beginning to write this book of Revelation, is given this vision. He hears a voice giving him instructions, and he turns to see the voice, and he says, I see seven golden lampstands, and standing among them is the Son of Man. This, vi- this, this vision, let me try that again, this vision, this image, conveys, I think, three defining truths about the church. Uh, the first is maybe obvious, maybe not, but it's so important we need to be reminded of it. Christ is present with his church. I know this isn't focused strictly on the image of the lampstand, but if you focus only on the image of the lampstand, you've kind of buried the headline here. The headline is Christ is here. Christ is here with his church. Christ is here with us. In our midst. In the midst of of his church. He's fulfilling that promise he made at the end of the book of Matthew. He tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations. And he says, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. John sees this vision, and there Jesus is with his church. Now this vision of Jesus is very different than the vision you get of Jesus in the Gospels, right? He's not lowly, He's not servant-like. He's not riding on a donkey here. He's regal, resplendent in his glory, shining, radiant, eyes like blazing fire, almost warrior-like, eyes like blazing fire, a golden sash, armor on his feet, a sword proceeding from his mouth. He stands in the midst of his church, ready to protect it, to guard it, to fight for it, and maybe even fight against it. But Jesus is there 
with his church. Now maybe you're thinking, yeah, of course, because Jesus is with me, always. Jesus is dwelling in me. He's with me when I'm in my prayer closet. He's with me in my car when I worship. And those are all absolutely wonderfully true. But it is additionally true, maybe even more wonderfully true, that Christ is here present in a different way with the church. As we gather together, where two or more are gathered in his name, he says, there I am. Yes, he's with you alone in your private times. But he's with the church in a special, unique, even more powerful way. So before we get on to looking at the lampstands and what they mean, don't miss this. Jesus is with his church. But now when you shift your focus to the lampstands and you ask, what is that symbolism supposed to convey? There's two things here that the symbol of the lampstand, I think, is supposed to convey. First, or second up here, right? It's cumulative. That's how it works in an outline. So second, the church has a holy calling. Church has a holy calling to take the light of Christ to the world, to shine the light of Christ into the darkness. A lot of times the New Testament picks up imagery from the Old Testament. John is especially good at this, picking up imagery from the Old Testament and tweaking it, adapting it to the new realities of the church that is in Christ. He's going back and he's taking imagery in this vision from the temple and the tabernacle, going all the way back to Exodus 25, Moses crafted a a seven-branched lampstand that would be in the temple that the priests would use as they ministered in the holy place. That same kind of lampstand appears in the prophet Zechariah. He has this vision of a a seven-branched lampstand. And in his vision, that lampstand represents the temple and Israel as a whole. The lampstand was a really good symbol for the temple and for Israel because they both shared this common mission to be light, to be an attractive light that would bring people in. It goes all the way back to Israel's founding. When, Israel was, when Abraham was called, he was told that you must be a blessing to the nations. In other words, you must shine the light of God to the nations. When King Solomon was, was dedicating the temple that he built for God, he prayed for a lot of things. He prayed for protection from enemies. He prayed that God would keep them and find them faithful. He also prayed for the foreigner. The foreigner who wasn't a part of Israel. He said, I pray that they will hear of your name. That they will hear of your great name, your mighty hand, your outstretched arm. And they'll turn towards the temple and pray towards the temple. And he said, and when they pray, when the foreigner prays, hear them and answer. Do what they ask so that they will know you are the true God and that this is your house. Israel and the temple had this light-bearing, light-shining mission to the world. When you get to the book of Revelation, the imagery has shifted a little bit. 
to actual craftsmanship, if you want to call it that. John doesn't see a seven-branched lampstand. He sees seven individual lampstands. But the truth is the same. The, the, The meaning is the same. The church also, in continuity with Israel, in continuity with the temple, has this light-bearing mission. A holy calling. The church's mission to be the light to the world. On a Saturday morning, my son Caleb told me a, a funny story about something that happened to him at work Friday night. You got to understand, Caleb had an incredibly long week and an incredibly long day. Got up at like 5.30 in the morning, went to school, went to track practice, came home for about a half hour and enough time to eat and change, and then went to work at 5 and had a six-hour shift. So a long day. Towards the end of the day, he said, I was kind of on autopilot. You say the same thing, you hear the same thing over and over and over again, and you're not even really paying attention anymore. And he said, we always ask, when someone orders whatever they're ordering, do you want your receipt with that? And always everybody says no. And so you crumple it up and throw it away. Well, towards the end of his shift, an older couple came up and he asked them if they wanted the receipt, and they said yes, and he held it out to them and crumpled it up. And he said the look on their face was like, what are you doing? So he straightened it out and gave it to him. He was on autopilot. He heard yes, but he thought no. You know, sometimes I think when we hear the word mission, we kind of go on autopilot. Especially if you grew up in a church like I did that, that revered missionaries. I mean, I loved it when missionaries came. They were celebrated. So when I hear mission, I think missionary. I loved their PowerPoint slides. I loved their, they weren't PowerPoints back then. They were actual slideshows, right? I love their stories. Missions what, what, is what missionaries did. But I'm not talking about that. I don't think that's what John's vision and the image here is meant to convey. It's the church, the whole church. Every member of the church has this mission. The church corporate, the whole institution has this mission. It's not just over there when we go to foreign lands that are exotic. It's right here in our nation, in our town, on our campus, in our dorm, in our place of business, in our home, In our kids' bedroom at night, we, the church, are on a mission. We have a mission. It's not just telling. It's also attracting. It's not just going. It's also being people who attract by the light that they reflect. This light shines through, yes, proclamation, right? We proclaim the good news. We herald the king who's offering amnesty to rebels and inviting them to come into his kingdom and feast with him. We herald that. We proclaim the good news of Christ crucified for our sins and raised victorious. But our mission isn't, doesn't end there. Our mission includes good deeds. Good deeds that adorn the gospel and make it beautiful to the world. Jesus said as much when he said, Let your light shine before men 
that they would see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Our mission includes things like doing a garden that helps feed the hungry in Bloomington, like going into the prisons and doing good deeds there, like helping your neighbor rake their leaves and mow their lawn, all done to adorn the gospel. But it doesn't end even there. It's not just about proclaiming and doing good deeds. It's about being the people of God. Jesus said, they'll know you. They'll know you by your love. Yeah, your love for me, but your love for one another. As you live as the people of God, you're being about the mission of reflecting Christ's light to the world. As we go about living and doing and proclaiming, Christ is with us. Christ is in the midst of the lampstands, offering his strength, giving his power, his protection, being there in his presence, the presence that we crave and that we need, so that we can say to people, come to the church, Come see the love here. Come and taste and see the presence of Christ. See that he is good. The church has a holy calling. But the church also has a calling to be holy. We have a holy calling and a calling to be holy. When I was a little kid, I loved Hot Wheels cars. Matchbox were okay, Hot Wheels was where it was at. I had tons of these things. I played with them on the sidewalk. I played with them in the yard. I had the racetracks in my bedroom. I took them to the sandbox with me. We went to the park, and I had them with me in my pocket, and we'd go down the slide with them. I used and abused my Hot Wheels cars. They were dented and scratched and worn, except for a few. There was these special edition Hot Wheels cars that came out every once in a while, and they were gold. They didn't come out of the case very often. They weren't for everyday, ordinary use. They were special. When John sees the lampstands in this vision, it's not just ordinary, everyday household lampstands. They're seven golden lampstands. Not use, not for use in the average, everyday kind of household stuff. You don't take them out to the barn. These are special, they're set apart for use in the temple, for use by God. They're holy. Not only are they holy because they're symbolized by gold, but Christ is present there with them. The lampstand in the tabernacle was holy because it was in God's house. The church is holy because it is God's house, where Christ dwells. We have this calling to be holy. The church as an institution is holy. Yes, we as individual members are are saints, which means holy ones. But we as the church, the institution of the church is holy. That can be said of absolutely no other institution on the face of this globe. Where you're unique, set apart for God's purposes, and made holy by Christ's presence among us.
Uh, give me a moment here to do a, a sidebar, okay? Because there's often feel this tension between holiness and being about our mission. Sometimes we get all gung-ho for mission, and we think to ourselves, we need to be attractive to the world. We need to be inoffensive to the world. We need to become a little bit more like the world to win a hearing from the world. And there is some wisdom and some truth in that. But when that goes too far, you quickly get into some really gray areas and compromise. Sometimes the pendulum swings the other way. And we wave the holy flag. And we say we have to be different. We have to be unique, set apart. We have to be strange and weird and wear witness wear. At one point I had a a hat that was FBI. Can't even remember what it stood for. I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. It was witness wear. And sometimes we think, when we're waving that flag, if the world doesn't like it, so what? And we can become offensive in our very posture. There's truth there, but it's not right there. We have to understand that holiness is is essential. It's part and parcel of our mission. By our holiness, we're supposed to be attracting the world. So our holiness has to be winsome and humble. It ought to show the beauty of life with God, of life as God has designed it. There's a tension there, but holiness ought to be attractive to people. It helps in our mission. It doesn't hinder our mission. Now, even when we get it right, that doesn't mean the world's always going to love us. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that to some, to some were the aroma of life, to others were the stink of death. That can't be helped. But we don't need to needlessly be offensive. And we certainly can't compromise our mission. Okay, so what does this mean? What is this image of the, the lampstand? What do we take away from it? And these applications here are maybe not going to be as personal and individual as we're used to, because this is talking about the church. And I'm doing my bath, my bath, my best math teacher impression. I have one answer with five parts, okay? What this means is that the church, we we must guard against any and everything that would compromise our mission and our holiness. Things like false doctrine. Now, I am absolutely not trying to rile up the heresy hunters. You know who you are. Take your pills. Go back to sleep, okay? (laughs) Okay? Not what I'm trying to do. Here at ECC, we love our diversity. We celebrate it. Our our theological diversity is part of what makes this place so rich. We can debate. We can argue. We can have great discussions. Especially on what I would call non-essentials. Secondary level doctrines. 
Things like how sovereignty and freedom intersect. Things like baptism. Things like how we interpret the book of Revelation. All kinds of things that we can debate and discuss. And then beyond that, there's things that, frankly, we shouldn't even really have an opinion on. Scripture doesn't give us enough information, doesn't make it clear. Things like, what time should the service be? I don't know, five minutes later than it is now, so you'd be on time. (laughs) Might help. Don't have an opinion on that, really. It's adiaphora, things of indifference. But beyond the things of indifference, beyond the second-level doctrines, there is a core. A core that has been handed down through the ages, of which we are stewards, guardians even. Indispensable. Incontrovertible. They are the message that we herald and proclaim. If we lose that or allow it to become polluted, we've risked our mission. Secondly, immorality. Now again, when I put that up on the screen, the images that come to my own mind are from Nathaniel Hawthorne's, you know, the scarlet letter. I'm not advocating that either. We don't need a morality Gestapo any more than we need heresy hunters. But we do need a passion for holiness. A desire for it. Understanding that it is part of our mission. It is meant to be attracting the world to us. And understanding that when we fail to call sin, sin, when we simply wink and nod at it, we compromise our holiness. We compromise our mission. Now I hear Jesus' words in my ears right now. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? Yes, absolutely. And also, and also, be without sin. Don't abide persistent, unrepentant sin. Now, if these first two kind of points of application got you really excited, please hear the third. Lovelessness. Lovelessness will derail the church's mission in a heartbeat. Love is maybe the defining characteristic of the church. Without that, we are the clanging cymbal, the gong. We're empty, hollow, nothing. These first three come right out of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in the seven letters that John writes to the seven churches. Some he compliments and says, you're doing a great job of weeding out heresy, false teaching, of setting the moral compass. But I have this against you. You're loveless. Return to your first love. Others are kind of doing fine with the love thing, but they've grown lax in doctrine and morality. And he says, I might just remove your lampstand. Guard these things. They're essential for your holiness and for your mission in the world. Two more, briefly, that don't come directly out of Revelation 2 and 3, but I think are contemporary challenges for us, the church, challenges that could threaten to compromise or derail our mission. 
fourth withdrawal from society. It's tempting at times, especially as kind of venom or, or hate gets spewed towards the church, just to want to re- withdraw from it. There may be times where kind of strategic pullback, retreat, for the purpose of re-engagement is appropriate. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about seeking to escape and hide. The church, if it's going to be faithful to its mission, can never cower in a corner. It has light, and it must, must shed that light. Share it. The last point of application, I went too far, is a loss of distinctiveness. The church is utterly unique, entirely distinct from every other institution in the world. We can't compromise that. Uh, The world has plenty of special interest groups, plenty of political action groups and lobbying groups that are concerned with making life for their constituencies better. The church is different. Uh, The world has uh, plenty of charities that do wonderful work and should be supported. But the church is different. The church has an eternal holy calling and has a calling to be holy and is blessed with the very presence of Christ. We live in a town that is dominated, right, by a massive institution. It employs thousands. It is, in many ways, the financial backbone of this community. It kind of sets our identity, right? How many times do you tell people where you live, and then you say Bloomington, and they look at you like, I don't know where that's at. You say, it's Indiana University, and they're like, oh, gotcha. It's an incredibly good and important institution. Nowhere near as good or important as the little country church that has 30 members, a minuscule budget, and goes completely unnoticed by people passing by. That institution, that little country church, dwarfs the university in importance. Our church dwarfs the university in importance because we are a part of the church. The church that has a universal, eternal mandate and isn't just blessed with the occasional earthly dignitary. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, is with us each and every time we gather. The church is the most important institution in the entire world, bar none. Bar none. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful, undeserving, but grateful that you have chosen to incorporate us into this wonderful, holy thing called your church. Father, we pray that you would find us faithful in it, faithful in our doctrine, faithful in our living, faithful in our loving. Father, we pray that you would help us to take that mission seriously, but also to find it a joy that we get to shine your light 
into the world. Thank you, and by your power may you do it. In Jesus' name, amen.